and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree Church. It was such a blessing to be in the first service, and I, I have this against the worship team, regardless of who's doing it, as they always make me weep like a tremble, is I guess what I would say. And so, man, it's just, it's just good. And so what a wonderful partnership between a sister church, Calvary Severance, and, and Bentry Church. It's a beautiful picture of the family of God cooperating. So we want to praise God for what he's doing at Calvary Severance. We're going to pray for them in a minute and thank God so much for Mark and Shelby taking time out to uh, not be with their church family and to be with your church family. Like I said, my name is Frank Trimble, and I work for an organization called Family Time Training, where it's our mission to train and equip parents and grandparents to pass the Christian faith to the next generation in the home. We're all about uh, seeking to inspire and equip families to talk about Jesus at home. And so it's a privilege today, and it's a privilege any time that I can be with this church. I can tell you this, and then we're going to read our passage, pray, and, and move on. But I can tell you this, um, I know that this wouldn't seem like an unbiased source because I'm related to your pastor, uh, and this is technically my home church, it's the church that launched me into ministry. Um, this is a special place, and I, I get the privilege of going to different churches, and I get to serve alongside some amazing churches, and just this one is just very special. A lot of really wonderful and rare things are happening in this church, so I want you to be affirmed in the fact that you're sitting here or that you're listening online, and I want to tell you, become a member it's important to do it and come ask me as somebody who is not a member of this church, we're members of a different church, why I believe that would be a really wise decision for you and your family. I would love to encourage you in that way. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Thankful to be in a church uh, that values God's word. This is going to be in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 18 starting in verse 1 and going through verse 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, whoever believe in my name to fall away, rather, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you're alive. Thank you so much that you sent your son to die for us, but that he didn't stay dead, that he rose again conquering death in the grave and is currently seated at your right hand with power, ruling and reigning. God, we stand in awe of the grace of God, the grace that you provide that was offered through what happened on the death, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are totally, totally inadequate for this task ahead of us this morning. But God, we are so thankful for your grace that overwhelms us today. Thank you, Lord, that we could do nothing to save ourselves. And we can do nothing to keep ourselves saved. But thank you, God, that we can stand with full confidence in you and in you alone this morning, that you are alive, you are active among us. May the Holy Spirit fill this place. And in the name of Jesus Christ, may we be completely controlled by you this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You have a seat. 
I've never been more convinced uh, that there is a great need for pastors, uh, teachers in the church, uh, youth pastors, children's ministers, uh, seminary professors, missionaries, full-time evangelists, full-time volunteers, bivocational ministers, you name it. If God's called you to vocational ministry, I've never seen a greater need than for us to be articulate in our message. Here's what I mean. I, I, I've never been more convinced that in this day and age, what they call the information age, where research is really commonly just looking something up on YouTube or Googling something, where information seemingly is at our fingertips, I've never been more convinced that we're to rise up to what we've always uh, been tasked with doing, which is being articulate with our words, being intentional with the words that we use when we open God's word and we teach other people about the living God. It is a serious and weighty task, and we have no time for shoddy statistics, hearsay messages, or illustrations that inspire but distract from the text. We just don't have time. But I want to comfort you in this way. I'm not talking about some ivory tower theological uh, language that nobody understands. We, uh, I'm, what I'm talking about is regardless of who you are, regardless of the IQ that you have or how smart you viewed yourself, whether you're in vocational ministry or not, whether God's called you to a ministry in business or as an educator and the list goes on and on and on, regardless of your IQ test results, your GRE test results, your ACT, your SAT, your LSAT, regardless if if you tried to pass the bar exam five times and you've not been able to push it through and you view yourself as a failure because of that, regardless of how people talked about your intelligence or lack thereof as you were growing up, no matter what you think your brain can do, we are called by God to humbly submit our brain, submit our life, submit our accomplices, submit our pride to him and follow him in childlike faith. This, this, this charge doesn't come from me. It comes from the many different examples in Scripture where God talks about kids. It even uses kids as an example. It's all over Scripture. It's really beautiful stuff. I mean, I'm reminded of Psalm 127 where children are literally called a heritage from the Lord, a gift from God. Blessed is the one whose quiver is filled with them. He will not be ashamed at the city gates. We've talked about that before, this beautiful imagery of children actually being a gift. But even in the New Testament, we see examples of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, referencing children specifically as examples for us to follow. And seeing examples of these children actually doing what adults should be doing, but because of our age and all of our wisdom, we don't do. One example of this was so faithfully preached by Pastor Jeff on August 15th of this year. If you haven't listened to that message, go listen to the Bentry message. It's on YouTube. It's on the podcast. Go listen to Jeff, Pastor Jeff's message on Matthew 21. Faithfully goes through the text, gives you the larger context of that, of that passage, and, and I really want you to lean into the full context of that. But if you can go there with me just for a moment, Jesus has just gotten through cleansing the temple. Meek and mild Jesus is not the picture that you see in Matthew 21, where he, in righteous anger, and a beautiful picture of perfect, perfect wrath of God expressed in cleansing the temple from what people had turned it into. Cleansing the temple, a picture of God's wrath, cleansing the temple to its rightful use. And then you see this amazing, stark contrast between what the money changers and all these people were doing to pollute God's house. And then he cleanses it. And then in the next scene, you see Jesus healing the lame and the blind, 
in the temple. It's an amazing picture. But what's even cooler for me when I, when I look at it is he's healing these people in the temple after cleansing it. And then children are in view of this. Children are watching this happen. And what do the kids do in Matthew 21? They proclaim the truth of who God is. They have immediate praise, prayer, and, and, and acknowledging the Messiah has come. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. But all the while, as these kids are praising Jesus, acknowledging him for who he is and praising him for his acts of healing these people, Hosanna, save now, please save now. Christ, the son of David is here. The Messiah has come. The prophecies have been fulfilled. And these are little kids acknowledging who God is and what he's done just now and resulting that in praise, responding to that in praise and prayer. But all the while, off in the distance, as was their custom as testified in the New Testament, unfortunately, is these chief priests and scribes were standing off in the distance and they see these kids saying what they believe believe to be blasphemy. Wait, Jesus, did you hear what they just said? They just said, Hosanna to the Son of... They just called you the Messiah. Did you hear what they just said? These chief, chief priests and Pharisees, these chief... I mean, they were upset. And Jesus says, yes, I, I, I did hear them. And actually, they're fulfilling Psalm 8-2. They're fulfilling Psalm 8-2. It reminds me of Mark chapter 10, 13 through 14. Another picture of adults not getting it and children getting it. But this time, it wasn't chief priests and scribes. It was the disciples of Jesus. And can I just say that when the disciples mess up in the New Testament, it just encourages me. It just makes me feel like a part of the club. When I just don't get something that I'm supposed to get and seeing the guys that were with him for three years at least, day in and day out, just not get it. But these people were bringing their kids to Jesus, as we would too as parents. If we believed he was the Messiah and we had heard that he had healed people, these parents are bringing the children to Jesus so that he would lay hands on them and bless them. And as the children are being brought to Jesus, the disciples get out in front and do the Lord's work, and they rebuke the children. They rebuke the children. Get away from the Messiah. Get away from Jesus. Jesus answers their rebuke with indignation towards them. Don't hinder these kids. Let the children come to me. For such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Two images of adults not getting it, not having a clue. And then in the innocent and humble faith of these children, they show us what we're supposed to do. I cannot stress this enough. I can't stress this enough. Regardless of what you walked into this service with in relation to how smart or how dumb you think you are, Maybe you think you're the dumbest person in the room. Maybe you think you can't accomplish anything. You cannot get that promotion. You cannot pass that class. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot. People have affirmed that you cannot, you cannot, you cannot. You've got that person right here. Then you've got this person over here that is resting on their accomplishments. Multiple doctorate degrees. Beautiful family. The family pictures are stunning. They're the top salesman in their organization. They achieve, they achieve, they achieve, they achieve. Regardless of where you think your brain is this morning, what we are called to do is lay down everything about us, that Romans 12, 1 through 2 idea, lay down our very minds, lay down our accomplishments, lay down our pride, and follow Christ in humble, childlike faith. The text that, that we read just a little bit ago, our primary text for today, Matthew 18, starting in verse 1, gives us yet another example of adults not getting it and children getting it. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember me telling you about that time when the disciples mess up? 
when the disciples don't get it. They've been walking with Jesus. They're still thinking in fleshly human terms. Remember, this is prior to the cross. This is prior to Pentecost. This is prior to Acts chapter 2. They're coming in. They're going, okay, Jesus, we're following you. We're seeing you go to the sick and the hungry, and you're going to the least of these. But listen, though, for real, who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom, right? Me? You know, like, is it going to be him? Who's it going to be? And what Jesus does, true to Jesus' fashion of teaching, during the incarnation, he uses an illustration. And in this case, he uses a living illustration. Let's see what he answers them with. In verse 2, he called a child and had him stand among them. Picture it. Go there. Picture what that could have looked like. He sees a child in the crowd, welcomes the child right in front of him as a living illustration of what he's about to say. Remember, what they asked was a statement of pride, whether they meant it or not. Will I be the greatest? Will he be the greatest? Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Let me answer you that with an illustration. (laughs) Brings a child in as a picture of humility. He calls a child, has him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the original language there is emphatic. You could say it like this. You will absolutely not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is something that should cause us to perk up, right? If we started to doze off, this should cause us to slap ourselves awake. Why? Anytime that you hear the Bible talk about eternity, anytime you hear the Bible talk about reward, punishment, the literal place of heaven, the literal place of hell, and the consummation of all things with the new heavens and the new earth becoming one, anytime you hear about eternity, especially when it's coming from the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, we got to listen. You got to say, what would you say? <laughs> Let's say it again. Unless you turn. He says, truly I tell you. So that's like him saying, listen up. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In our language, you will not become a Christian. So what are you talking about? Jesus is not commanding you to say, you need to regress your mental development. Right? Those, all those developmental stages that you accomplished, praise God that this frontal lobe is getting there, right? Praise God that we're growing, right? I'm saying we, I mean me. Praise God for that. Oof. That non-formed frontal lobe can do some damage, right? But praise God for how God has grown us and how God designed us. He's not saying become like a child as if you are immature, irresponsible, forget the things that you know, be childish. No. He's saying Take the pride that you exhibited. Put it down. Pick up humility like this child. Have you ever taught the Bible to children? It's cool. Because of God's design. Just a a couple months ago, my daughter showed me the motions to the days of creation that she had learned at school. It was cool. It was awesome. And then me, they were taking a bath at the time, me... And Kristen and the girls were there, and Ava is teaching us the days of creation. You know what's awesome? The different ages, the different experiences, we're all on the same page. That's awesome. Teach me those motions again. And some of you, as you hear this message, and as you move through this message, you'll be thinking, yeah, but I've aged out of that. Like, I've been on YouTube before. You know, I found out about Google. Wikipedia is strong. You know what I mean? Like... I can answer any question at the drop of a hat and call it research. I've aged out of that. 
Jesus is not calling you to become childish, immature, forget what you know, regress. He's calling you to lay down your pride, pick up humility, acknowledge that he's God, you're not. Place your humble faith in him as if you were a child. Don't let all of these invisible, invisible weights on your shoulders, invisible chains on your legs of supposed mature adulthood keep you from the most wise thing that you could ever do, which is this, to place your faith in Jesus. What if you're the one with three PhDs and you've accomplished so much, you built your own house with your two hands? I mean, like you, you are the epitome of accomplishment. Well, let's submit that mind to God and watch what he does to it. Maybe you're the one that just views yourself so low, you've never been called smart in your entire life. Sometimes you take pride in that identity. Well, I'm just the dumb one. I don't know, I'm just the dodge, I don't know. We need to lay that pride down as well. And live into God's design for your brain. God's design for your life. He says, therefore, so we're supposed to turn and become like children. That's that picture of repentance and faith. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See how he answered the question? You're thinking one thing, disciples. I'm going to show you a completely different thing. I can just see the confused look on their faces. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. But then he also says something else. He says, and whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 25 when when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you visit the imprisoned, you're actually visiting who? Jesus, the down and out, the lowest of the lows, understand that children in this culture over 2,000 years ago not exactly looked for for advice. (laughs) Children in this culture, from a sociological standpoint, they're not really looked at as all that important citizens of their area, right? They're, They're not looked for for advice or counsel or wisdom. You know, it's not that crazy of a statement to say that over the last 50 to 100 years, who knows what the exact timeline is, But what's this phrase that we hear about kids, even in church? Children are meant to be seen and not heard. heard. Isn't it sad that we know that by heart? It's a cultural norm that I'm happy to know is being done away with. Children are meant to be seen and not heard. But how many times in churches does it take one step further? Children are not meant to be seen and not meant to be heard. Because, man, aren't they annoying? Don't they make noise? This is me time. Jesus says, whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. There's a man in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. His name is Dr. Clint May. And he runs an organization, a nonprofit organization called Leaders and Trainings. Really some amazing stuff happening with this children's ministry. Really cool stuff. And Clint, one of the statements that I've heard him say repeatedly, repeatedly is when a child becomes a Christian, that child does not receive a baby Holy Spirit. Think about it. (laughs) When a child becomes a Christian, they receive the third person of the Trinity. Ephesians chapter 1, they are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When we don't include children in the regular life of our churches... We lose. You lose. I lose. 
If we say, we've got some crayons and some stuff over there because you can't handle it. God's living in them if they've given their life to Jesus. We lose when we do not include them in the larger body of the church. Somehow, that's up to the church. That's up to the church of how these kids are worked into the larger body where they're not just simply only kids with kids where they, you need them and they need you. He says, whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. This is big. This is important. Do you hear the gravity in this statement and this gravity, this feeling of gravity that we're getting from Jesus' words about the example of children? And let's be clear, he doesn't just limit this to children, but he includes children in this. As we'll see in this passage in a moment, this doesn't just limit it to zero and 18-year-olds as we would call it today, but any child of God. When you look at the overall narrative of this passage and you see that this is what Matthew is communicating here from Jesus' sermon, from Jesus' example is, yes, this includes children, but let's back it up to any child of the Father. And he says this warning in verse 6. Now, anytime, like I said earlier, Jesus talks about heaven and hell, the eternal state of all living people, we perk up. Anytime scripture gives an example of a warning, we perk up again. And rightly so. Jesus gives a very stark warning. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus here is not encouraging Bent Tree Church to go find an upper millstone and to exercise church discipline by extreme measures. (laughs) He's not saying that. Any more than later on in this passage, he's saying you to actually literally cut off your foot hand and pluck out your eye if they cause you to sin. But do you sense the gravity of the Son of God's statement? Can we? Sometimes we go, yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it's an illustration. Yeah, it's a... Is Jesus serious? It's life or death. If your hand causes you to stumble, boy, cut it off. Better for you to enter into, hell, enter into, enter into heaven without a hand, right, than to enter into hell fully intact. Right? We know that's not literal because we'd all just be torsos with no tongue, eyes, ears, nothing. Just be like, I took it literally. No, he's stating a point. He's making a point. It's so serious. Sin is more serious than we could ever imagine. More serious than I could ever imagine. And so is misleading a child. So is misleading any child of God. I want to give you a picture. Aren't you young parents and just any parents in the room, grandparents, aren't you thankful for good pediatricians? Good pediatricians. We had one in Texas that was just a superstar. I mean, when he walked into the room, we felt good. We felt okay. At least Dr. Everett's here. I mean, he's a professional. He loves our kids. This man was also a believer. I mean, praise God for amazing pediatricians. We, we were given an amazing pediatrician in Denver because of God's providence as well. But I want to paint a picture for you. What if we moved to Denver and we go to, go to this pediatri- pediatrician's office for the first time? It came 
by a recommendation from somebody, hey, you got to go to this pediatrician. He's really cool, cutting edge. We go into the office. The guy walks in the room and he says, man, am I glad you're here. I'm needing some practice. (laughs) I mean, your children are like the most important thing in the world. I mean, like, what? And then he elaborates a little bit. He says, you know, because I mean, if I'm honest, I mean, you guys seem like comfortable people. You guys seem like real, you know, like honest people. I'm going to be myself with you, you know, kind of thing. Really, this is just like a placeholder until I can become a real doctor. You know, I want to, I want to work with adults. Yeah. So when can we get started? What are we doing? We're leaving, right? Calling the authorities. Malpractice because this dude's going to harm some kids. He's performing experiments on children as he cuts his teeth, as he gets more at-bats. It's a ludicrous scenario. It's ludicrous. It's crazy, right? Scary even to think about. Oh, God, praise God that that's not what happens. But that happens in churches all the time with those that work with children. Let me, let me tell you why. It's very, 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 very common for young men to go into the ministry and unfortunately view it almost like a coaching assignment where you just go from one position to a higher position to a higher position and they go, I don't want to be a children's minister, but I'm going to be a children's minister so that I can get more at-bats, so that I can cut my teeth, so I can learn how to be a pastor, so I can sharpen my theology. Older pastors praise this practice. Yeah, it's put him with the youth. He's cool. He's young. He's working on it. He's working things out. It's like Apollos, right? He's working things out. He's in in front of the kids. Performing spiritual malpractice on the souls of children. Have we ever accidentally ignored this warning in church life? I think absolutely. Hear me clearly. When somebody moves from a children's pastor or a youth pastor to a senior pastor, praise God if that's what God's called them to do. But if they're intentionally trying to use children to get to a higher level, we're coming against this passage. It's dangerous. It's scary. When I was a youth pastor in, in Texas, I, I, never, I never saw myself being a youth pastor. It happened kind of accidentally. I felt like God clearly called me to that thing. And although youth ministry was very, very hard, I remember the words of, my, of one of my mentors at, uh, at, at my seminary. He said, youth pastors should be some of the sharpest or the sharpest theologians on the church's complex. Why? Because in this information age, when YouTube is called research and podcasts are called resources, these kids have real questions, and they want to come to somebody that they can trust who is sharp as a tack, although imperfect and makes mistakes, but they have studied, they've given it all they've got to give them biblical, theologically sound answers so that these kids are told the truth about the God that created them, loved them, died for them. We must see kids like God sees kids, but to the point of this passage, we must follow the example of children in this, humble repentance and faith in God as the word testifies about him. As the word testifies about him. This would be the equivalent of going up to the foothills, finding about a 3,000 pound boulder, finding a chain or a rope, bringing the person who's misled the child and throw them into Lake Loveland when it's full qualifier there obviously we're not doing that but do we get the seriousness of jesus's words not that long ago i sat across from a a person who had immediate influence over the spiritual uh, spiritual education of children and i wanted to get to know this guy 
I wanted to get to know his heart because he was over discipleship and it might have even impacted my own kids. This wasn't in the church or anything like that. But I wanted to get to know him, knew nothing about him. And as I sat across from him, he began to tell me things that alarmed me. Do you ever have a conversation with somebody and red flags just start popping up everywhere? From a theological standpoint, from a discernment standpoint, I mean, there weren't enough flags. I mean, the store ran out. I mean, just like coming up over my head, pow, 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 pow. I'm terrified. Shaking at a coffee shop in Denver. Oh, goodness. What am I going to do? And I asked him the question about Matthew chapter 18. I said, what about that passage where Jesus says it would be better to tie an upper millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to mislead a child? Of course, but he doesn't have any, any belief in the authority of Scripture. So it doesn't matter. It's just words. Scripture contains truth, he would say, and is not authoritatively true. Neither here nor there. Left there terrified. Eventually he was fired from his institution because of the heresy of universalism. Praise God. All the while I pray that he repents of his sin and puts his faith in Jesus. Because let me say, say this very quick. The grace of God, if you've accidentally or intentionally committed the sin, the grace of God is available for you. Amen. Praise God for his grace that covers any sin. You cannot achieve. You cannot be perfect. And even if you commit the sin, the grace of God is there. Can you acknowledge it today and run to him, not to me. Run to him and say, I don't, I don't know. I think I might have. I don't know. But be covered in the grace of God today. And all the while, in that same grace of God, you as leaders of Bentry Church can move forward with this warning. You're not going to see this etched on a pillow at Mardell. <laughs> You're not going to see this etched on a pillow in Hobby Lobby. <laughs> You're not going to see this probably painted on the wall of the children's wing of Bentry. Probably not. Probably not. But maybe you need it in the folds of your Bible, children worker. Maybe you need it in the folds of your Bible, elder. Listen, I didn't know that the elders were going to be in Saul today, but what a gift. What a gift. I want you to understand the gravity of this just for a moment. Just as Paul said, these two men that were sitting there, the men that were behind them and the men that weren't able to make it today, will literally give account for your souls. And I know that those men know the full weight of what that is. It reminds me of James chapter 3, verse 1, as I reflect on this warning as well. Brothers, not all of you should be teachers, for you will be held to a stricter judgment. This is life or death. Doctrine, theology, the, what this is here, it's life or death. But again, this example of children comes in. This example of children overwhelms us. And we think, gosh, but aren't kids kind of, aren't they kind of dumb? <laughs> aren't kids, I mean, use the example of kids. I mean, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be humble and stuff, but what's all this example about children? Don't we normally view kids as those that don't do anything right? You know, when I was growing up, I was in junior high, and I had a friend of mine that was going through a process that they now call the deconstruction of, of his faith. And what we know biblically is that a faith can't be deconstructed. If they were never believers, uh, they can't be deconstructed out of that, right? It's, it's not a thing. And, all, and, and we need to show them love and we need to be there. But this particular person is going through his particular process with that. And he heard from a PhD in New Testament, I assume because he was teaching at a Christian college and teaching the New Testament, that the disciples were idiots. And I remember sitting with my friend in a truck, and he said, Frank, you don't, know, you don't know this, but I learned this in New Testament. The disciples were dumb. 
The disciples were idiots. It would take an idiot to follow Jesus to your death. It would take an idiot. These guys were just like following along. Okay, here we go. Idiots. Let the light bulb go off over your head. These guys were idiots. They, were, they, were, they, they weren't people that you should follow today. They were idiots. It was like this epiphany had happened for this guy. And I remember even as a junior high student and really not, I wasn't a believer, I don't think at the time. And I remember not really caring about that statement a lot. I remember going, okay, I, I don't think that's right, but I, I don't think the disciples are dumb. Like, I don't, I don't know. Flash forward years and years later, years and years later, I was in seminary, and I was in my New Testament class with a New Testament professor uh, that, that actually believed the Bible. And he took us through Acts, and we went to Acts chapter 4, and I found the verse in which uh, this guy was talking about all those years ago. Acts chapter 4 is this awesome passage. Peter and John are in trouble because they've been spreading the news of the gospel all around. No matter what's going to happen to them, they're, they're captured, they're in front of this Jewish council, and all of a sudden, you see uh, them saying, you know, stop doing this, stop staring the truth of, of who God is, but he does anyway. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, chapter 4 says, and he preaches the truth in front of these people that could have him killed. And then, in verse 13, you see this. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. So this amazing picture, these qualifiers. First, early on in chapter 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke. Remember, Pentecost has already happened, so the Holy Spirit is permanently indwelling them, but they're living in the Holy Spirit as they teach the truth of God. And then they come to this phrase here and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. But these people were amazed. They've been with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. But you come down to this word, uneducated and untrained. The Greek word for untrained there is idiotes, where we get our word idiot. That's where this epiphany came from. Of course, 2,000 years later, the word idiot now and idiotes back then, they mean very different things in a cultural connotation. My goodness, but to, to, to my friend, it was like this epiphany that had gone off. They were idiots. All this word means in Acts chapter 4 is that they had not been given the blessing of going to school, which was actually really normal. They were not skilled in any specific art or craft. They worked and all of this. And of course, later on, you see people like Luke, who are a medical doctor, the author of Hebrews, who's Greek, and Hebrews is a high, high level of writing. I mean, you, you get a guy like Paul who basically had the equivalent of a PhD, but put all that aside, the disciples were idiots. How have you viewed yourself? Have you viewed yourself as an idiot or the smartest person in the room? I want to give you an example of somebody that gave me permission to give the story. Somebody that I used to work with in Texas. And uh, what you need to know about, his name is Larry Roseman. Talk to him on Monday. Make sure to get this permission. Larry was raised in Canton, Texas, raised in Van Zandt County, at one point, he was a prized boxer, like a, like a young guy, like a prized boxer. Still to this day, one of the most athletic people I've been around. He can just do things. Somehow or another, he got plugged into the uh, substance abuse world. Van Zandt County is known for its uh, meth problem, much like it is in, Van Zandt, in, uh, in uh, northern Colorado as well. Meth, lots of drugs. Larry got sucked into it and it consumed his life. The poor decisions that surrounded the drugs and substance abuse and all that stuff affected everything he did, even down to losing all of his teeth. Larry, if you met him, if you were to walk in this room, you would notice that he was there. He's, he's got a high volume. He's a joyful person. He has a thick, thick Texas accent that's only made more delightful by the fact that he doesn't have teeth. 
Larry is not afraid of you or anybody. And he loves Jesus. And that's a part of his story. For years, his mother-in-law was praying for him. She believed that he would be a pastor someday. She went to my former pastor in Texas and said, I'm praying for Larry. I mean, he's sucked up in all this stuff. His wife, Brenda, was sucked up in all that stuff as well. They had neglected their children. They had done so many things in the name of drugs and alcohol. And one day, Larry saw my pastor. And my pastor just asked him, Larry, when are you going to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ? And Larry was like, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with that. Walks away, but it wouldn't leave him. The Holy Spirit was pressing in on Larry, pressing in on him. And he came back to the pastor that same day and said, I want to do it today. Amen. 2009, guys, his whole life changed. His whole life changed. People would come to see the fact that Larry Roseman has become a Christian. His whole life changed. Several years later, through discipleship and mentoring and evangelism, and my pastor took him under his wing, one of, in one of the wisest hires a church has ever made, he was hired on staff to be the outreach and recovery pastor of that church. I will tell you this. Cambridge University is never going to hire Larry Roseman to come give a keynote speech about systematic theology. Oxford University is never going to call him and ha- have him serve as a theologian in, re- in residence. Larry dropped out of high school in his senior year. Larry doesn't have academic accomplishments. I would rather sit under the teaching of Larry Roseman, who believes God at his word and is one of the wisest people that I've ever met in my life. I would rather sit under his teaching any day than somebody that's been, that's been given two doctorate degrees from Harvard preaching the Bible with no belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Amen. Give me Larry because he's wise in the eyes of God. I want to tell you about another man. I was in seminary and I was going into Hebrew 2. And Hebrew 2 was a scary experience for me because it's just very hard. Very hard for me. How said amen. Because it's just tough. And I saw a guy. This guy's got his PhD in Hebrew and Aramaic. This guy's been teaching for decades and decades. He knows the Old Testament, guys, like the back of his hand. He knows every controversy that you can name. Every controversy that the atheists and the new atheist movement and the four horsemen of the new atheist movement have brought about. And they, I mean, nothing is a surprise to him. He's seen it all and he comes out on top every single time with a childlike faith in the authoritative message of the inerrant Bible. And I saw this guy leaned over the podium in this lecture hall, weeping over the beauty of the text of the Psalms. This man believes God's word front to back as authoritative as from God. You have somebody that didn't finish high school. You have somebody that has so many accolades, even his peers put together a series of essays in his name, in his honor for his academic achievements. And this man is weeping over the beauty of God's word, not because he's worshiping this, but because he's worshiping the God that spoke this. It's not about your intelligence today. Time doesn't permit to talk about mathematician John Lennox from Oxford Dr. Malcolm Yarnell from Southwestern Seminary that studied at Oxford. Time doesn't permit to talk about uh, Dr. Francis Collins, MD, PhD. Time doesn't permit to go on and talk about my New Testament professor, Aaron Sun, who was the protege of E. Earl Ellis at Southwestern Seminary. Literally a genius. Literally knows the New Testament like Dr. Klein knows the Old Testament. And he loves God and is amazed at his word like a child. It's not about your intelligence today. Teenager, If you've bought into the lie that you've aged out of that, if you've bought into the lie that Christianity is for idiots, 
It's not about your brain. I could show you literal geniuses and people who would never claim to be geniuses themselves like me and Larry. And we both sit at the foot of the cross acknowledging that God is God and we are not. Jesus brings the example of a child in front of us. Not to say you guys need to be immature, not to say you guys need to forget what you know, but to say whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're trusting in today, lay it down at the foot of the cross. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, he will exalt you. I want you to close your eyes with me. And I'm going to tell you something incredible. I'm going to tell you something incredible. One of the things I love about the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about it here in a minute as the band comes up. I'm going to tell you something incredible. So I want you to listen to these words. Thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, God created mankind. God created everything out of nothing. Your first ancestors, Adam and Eve, were brought about. And they were created to be in harmony and in relationship with God. Genesis chapter 3 describes the fall of man, tempted by the devil himself in the form of a serpent. Adam and Eve fell. Everything was changed by that. The earth itself was forever changed by that. Romans chapter 8 talks about how our bodies groan and how the earth itself groans for the consummation of all things, for things to be made right because everything is made terrible by sin. Romans chapter 3 describes how that sin separates us from God. That sin completely separates us from God. Sin cannot be in the presence of a righteous and holy God. And then plan A. God sends his son. For God so loved the world, he sends his son. And the son went willingly and with joy to live a perfect life that we were required to live but couldn't after the law of God. And he died the death that we were supposed to die because of our sins. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, it's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He died on the cross and rose again on Sunday. Literally, in history, rose again on Sunday. Appeared to many people over the course of 40 days. Gave the great commission to his disciples. And then ascended into heaven. As he ascended into heaven, the Father, this comes from Psalm 110, it's testified also in Hebrews 1 and in many other passages, the Father tells the Son in his coronation service, come, be enthroned at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He's now seated at the right hand of power. He told the disciples this was true. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. I said at the beginning of this, I'm going to tell you something amazing. And you might have heard it, and you might have said, I've heard this before. But I want to tell you something amazing. It's real. If you've been saved, you know that. If your heart has been changed and your mind has been transformed, you know that. But there might be somebody in this room right now that thinks that they've aged out of this phenomenon. Man, he is alive. When you see Pastor Paul, when you see these people up here leading in worship and we start talking about the resurrection, we start talking about the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and I don't care what you think. It changes everything about your life. You must address it. But hear me clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Romans 5.8. For God displayed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. You will never achieve enough. You will never be good enough. You're ne- you will never be as philanthropic enough. You will never make it. But that's why we cling to what Jesus has done for us on the cross so that you can come today like a child in full faith, in full humility, letting him be God and you laying down your God status. Turn and become like a child. Turn from whatever you're trusting in and put your faith in Jesus this morning and allow him to renew your mind. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that people would be saved today. Not just here, Calvary Severance. Father, I pray that people would be saved. I pray that people would enter into discipleship relationships, God, that literally change everything about them. God, I pray that people would be able to understand the mighty, powerful, overwhelming love of the wonderful name of Jesus. Father, I pray that they would quit trusting in themselves and that they would put their faith in Jesus. Father, we give you the rest of our service today. We give you the rest of our time. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work as we sing and as we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.